Hello pod, I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to the final Empire podcast of 2021. Or the first of 2022, depending on when you listen to this. Either way, what a way to go out. Or what a way to go in. Because this is an in-depth interview special with the one, the only, Quentin Tarantino. Which is apt, as I started the year with an epic Quentin Tarantino podcast, in which he and I sat down with Edgar Wright and talked, well, they talked, I mainly listened, about British cinema. So it makes sense to end this year with Tarantino, a lovely pair of QT podcast bookends, if you will. And bookends are also apt, as this podcast is mainly dedicated to an in-depth discussion of Tarantino's first book as a writer of prose, which is a novelization of his Oscar-winning screenplay for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. If you've read that book, and I would strongly suggest that you do before listening to this, because even though it's not a spoiler special per se, we do talk about some plot developments in great detail. And if you've read the book, then you'll know that it's not just simply a copy and paste job, but it is an elaboration on an expansion of the movie, shifting key scenes around, adding tons of new material, and introducing plenty of depth and shade to scenes from the movie, answering plenty of questions raised by the film. So if you want to know, for example, whether Cliff Booth really did kill his wife, the book answers that, definitively. So this interview, which took place in a London hotel room in September, the day after Tarantino had taken part in an onstage Q&A at the Alexander Palace with Kim Newman, this interview talks about all that stuff as well as Tarantino's creative process, his compassion for his characters and the way that runs throughout his career, his plans for more works set in and around this world, and much, much more. Again, it's not a spoiler special per se, but we do go into spoilerific details around some of his films and the fates of some of his characters. Some of those films are Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, True Romance, Chango Unchained, Inglorious Bastards, and, of course, once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So perhaps tread lightly if you haven't seen any of those movies. Not that I suspect that many people who are listening to this haven't seen Quentin Tarantino's films. Anyway, one last thing before we begin, because I'm sure it's on the mind of some of you. Why did it take so long for this podcast to appear? Well, my initial plan was to have it come out at the end of October, just after the issue of Empire in which some excerpts from this had appeared. So just after that issue went off sale, that's when I initially planned to have this appear. But then I started thinking, you know, Christmas would be a lovely time to put this out. So I started aiming for Christmas and the bookends thing, the bookends thing appealed greatly to me as well. But then, as you may or may not know, or indeed care, I got COVID just before Christmas and that set the production line back a week or so. But anyway, all good now. Finally, here it is, just in time for the end of the year. Me talking to Quentin Tarantino in a London hotel room about once upon a time in Hollywood. Enjoy. Delighted to be joined on the Empire podcast by the author of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Mr. Quentin Tarantino. How are you, sir? Good to be here, Chris. Thank you. Good to be here. Good to... I mean, God, how long has it been since I heard those words? Good to be here. Yeah. And it actually was someone who was here in front of me rather than on a Zoom screen. Because <laughs> right. the last time we spoke was on Zoom. You were in your... Yes, I was in uh, Tel Aviv and uh, everybody complained about uh, uh, the little mic on my iPad, which felt <laughs> like I was whistling in the crapper. <laughs> but you know, you get used to it. 
Yeah. <laughs> Once you're into the second hour, it's totally fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> By the third hour, it was fine. <laughs> well, listen, thanks for doing this. Uh, this is know, a proper mic. This is a proper mic. Hello, this is a, hello, hello. And this is a proper hotel suite. Mm-hmm. This is, I've got my, my, I hope I pressed a chord. Yes, I have. I've just double checked. I've forgotten mm-hmm. what to do, Quentin, if I'm completely honest with you. Hey, well, so let me ask you a quick question before yeah. we get into what we're going to get into. Um, we talked about so many movies uh, on the last uh podcast that yeah. seemed to make worldwide news all <laughs> over the globe. Um, we mentioned uh, some different uh, movies that I was talking about that you hadn't seen. Uh, is there any that you uh, saw that I mentioned I've that, s- that stand out from you? Strong that, Room. Yeah. Uh, stood strong out room. for me. So you, 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 you were a fan too? Yes. Mm-hmm. Loved it. Mm-hmm. Loved it. And in fact, it's like, what, 65 minutes long? Yeah. Six, 70 minutes long? Just like, Just get in, get out. Yeah, ends with a devastating uh, solar plexus punch. See, that I was not prepared for. I was not prepared for it either. You had prepared me for certain things. There are certain twists yeah. that that were mm-hmm. that were coming, um, car crashes and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the end, oh man! Right in the solar plexus. Yeah, and, yeah, and not not pre- not predictable at all. No, I didn't mm-hmm. think it was going to end that way. Yeah, and it, <laughs> and, and, and and it's a punch that stings. It yeah. stays with you after the after the closing credits. Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, I think it might still be available because a lot of those movies are hard to track down. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's loads that are available, the, especially the British ones we talked about. Mm-hmm. On Studio Canal, they have a vintage collection. But oh, Strong Room uh-huh. cropped up on, we. I don't know if you know, we have a channel over here called Channel 5. Oh, uh-huh. And suddenly one day I was just flicking through Channel 5's films and mm-hmm. there was, I think mm-hmm. someone on my, on my Twitter alerted me to Strong Room's presence and there mm-hmm. it was. And I immediately pounced upon it. Oh, and, wow. Yeah, I, mean, I just it saw it on cracker. YouTube. Uh, well, see, I saw for free uh, see, on YouTube. See, YouTube, I don't know. I, I, I feel a bit funny about YouTube. Why? What, you would rather pay all this money to all these, to <laughs> Apple and all the, and, and Amazon and all these rich fuckers? I have all to, right? I, I, no, I've, I've got to be in the straight and narrow, Quentin. I've got to, I can't, uh, no, I can't walk No, it's like, the, you know, I mean, uh, that's a, uh, that's a source for, that's a yeah. source for movies. Don't give those bastards money. <laughs> 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 all right, done, done deal. Now my I, movies you should pay for, but all these other ones, these old movies, fuck them. Yeah, okay, fuck them. All right, I'm going for it. Old movies. Quentin Tarantino told me it was okay. I could do it. Um, but you're here in London because you were doing an event last night with our own Kim Newman. Yes, exactly. Uh, about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the novelization, mm-hmm. yes. um, which has been out for a few months now. What's the reaction been like for you? Well, it's been pretty, and I have to say, in, uh, particularly here in England, uh, uh, the reaction from the the critics was was pretty positive. I'm surprisingly so. Not that I'm being self-depreciating. I've, mm. I I like the book quite a bit. But I, I, you know, frankly, to tell you the truth, I thought giving especially book critics a chance to, you know, take a swing at me that uh, some of yeah. them wouldn't miss the opportunity. But, uh, uh, but that has ended up not being the case. Uh, the, the press has been pretty generous with the with the book and they seem to like it and, and they've been like encouraging and <laughs> starting on a new chapter of my career, I'll uh, take all the encouragement I can get. But then also uh, just the fact that it's, uh, but it's been doing smashingly. It's been, it's been selling really great and, and uh, people have been starting come up to me and they didn't just buy it, they read it. And people have been coming up to me and just saying, hey, I just read your book. And that's, that's, Really, really exciting, and and um, and uh, uh, yeah. So I'm, I'm really, I, I couldn't be, I couldn't really, truly be more thrilled with the response. What's the, what's the the main comment? What's the thing that you've been getting most from people? Because there's quite a lot of changes from the film. Yeah, that's fun. That's an interesting, uh, that's an interesting question. Um, 
I guess the two comments that I've been getting that have been very gratifying, you know, this person will like this chapter, that person will like that uh, that chapter. But um, I guess the two things is that one, that it's a fun read. Yeah. That like once they started reading it, they ha- found it really hard to put down. Yeah. And the next thing they know, it'd been an hour or two hours and uh, and they had just been reading the entire time. And this is by a lot of people that, uh, had gotten out of the habit of reading. Yeah. So there's a whole lot of people yeah. that like, this is like the first novel they, they may have read in a couple of years. Anything beyond a tweet uh, yeah, is yeah, tough. Exactly. Anything beyond a, ma- a magazine. Uh, you know, magazine, what's that? What's that, Uncle Quentin? Right. Uh, uh, oh yeah, we were for a magazine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's Uncle, Uncle Chris. Uh, Uncle, Uncle Chris, yeah. But now I've got a podcast, so I don't know what the hell's going on. What is a magazine? So the thing is, there is a... Um, you know, but but the, just the fact that uh, uh, it was a you know it was a fun read. It was uh, uh, one page led to another, and you just got into the you yeah. got into the rhythm of it. And you know, most people uh, knocked it out in three days, and um, and that was that was gratifying. That was that was fun. And then the other thing that I got from a lot of people that again I I I really liked was people just talked about how funny the book was, that they were laughing out loud. When yeah. they when they were reading it, and uh, and kind of the response that I've gotten from a lot of people, especially people I respect, is that the movie's very funny. The movie's yeah. very funny. Yeah, but the book's funnier. <laughs> <laughs> you were saving all the good guys for the yeah. uh, for the book. <laughs> there, there's there, I like that stuff about the uh, the book as well. But what I really liked about it was were the 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 changes that you made, the risks that you took. Mm-hmm. I mean. The the movie we talked about it last time because we did a we did yeah. a, a podcast delving deep into the movie as well, and the movie builds up to that night mm, yeah. and what would have right. been the the Tate murders, and it, you invest so much time and effort and mm-hmm. you know there's such a release this cathartic release this rush of violence mm-hmm. as as Rick and Cliff deal with yeah. the uh, with the Manson family, and then in the book. That comes halfway through. It's told in flashback. It's yeah. almost thrown away over yeah, the right, shoulder. Yeah, uh-huh. I love that. And mm-hmm. the ending is complete because I didn't know where you were going with that yeah. at that point. I didn't know what how the book was going to end. Mm-hmm. At what point did you realize you were going to do that? Um, fairly early on, more than likely, probably around the time that I reveal the ending. Yeah, you know, I, I can't remember exactly what chapter that is. Like chapter five or something like that. Yeah, uh, chapter six, five or six. Um. You know, so it's like a 400 page novel that's somewhere around 120 pages or something. And, um, well, I know, well, I take that back. I knew, no, I knew, no, I take that back. I, I pretty much knew from the beginning when I was writing the book that I wasn't going to include the ending that's in the movie. I knew what the ending of the book would be. And it's the ending that's in, uh, that's in the book. It's the yeah. last chapter of the book. So, uh, uh, yeah, so I'm, uh, um, no, yeah, so I knew. Uh, that I was going to end it that way. I knew I wanted to make a reference to the um, to what happened because there's, a, there's, there's every once in a while I do a little uh, the novelistic narrator jumps forward. Yes, yeah, in time, and so that just seemed to be the the, the right time yeah. to jump forward in, in that uh, uh, with that chapter with Rick in his bathroom thinking about things. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so I, I always knew that. Um, that I wanted to end the uh, end the book with um, with the ending that I have, yeah. Um, um, because, well, I already did the movie. I I kind of had two endings. There's a reason why I we shot that sequence 
And there's a reason why it's not in the movie because it's sort of, well, if you play that scene, that's the end. Yeah, yeah. You almost have to yeah. start the movie all over again after you show that scene. And that was actually the scene that was like my favorite scene that I wrote in, in the screenplay and was one of our favorite scenes that we shot. So like the idea that that scene wouldn't yeah. be in the movie was unfathomable. I mean, you just couldn't imagine it. And we, you know, we, we cut everything all together and we, and you know, and took our time to do it right. But then once after we, we cut the, the sequences and, and, and put it together and I watched it, mm. it was one of those things where it was like watching the movie play out in a long way. So not, and, and like I said, a good cut version, not like, not assembly. Yeah. Um, once we watched it that way, you know, I turned to my editor, Fred, and I go, well, after Spawn Ranch is over, we got to get out of this day. Oh, really? Okay. That's, yeah, this is the end. There's nothing that can, yeah, yeah. there's nothing that can beat Spawn Ranch. Once we get through with Spawn Ranch, we have to get to August. Okay. We have to get to uh, yeah. uh, the the night of the murder. Night of the murders. We're not going to make a quick cut to there, but we have to, uh, as elegantly as we can, we need to wrap up this story. Yeah, and um, you know, and that's different from the structure that existed in the script that we all thought we were doing. Where we're, you know, we thought of the, the piece as a a three act piece, with the first act being that first day, mm -hmm. the second act being the second day of them yeah. out doing their things and maybe ending with Spawn Ranch. Yeah. And then the third act being that night, which is sort of how the third act of the book yeah, yeah, yeah. plays out. Yeah. And then that's the third act. And the scene, the scene between Rick and Trudy is the official end of the third act movie. And then the night of the murders was the epilogue. Yeah. And I, I even had epilogue. <laughs> Yeah. pop up um, you know, before it starts. And so that was sort of the epilogue. And then once we uh, changed it and uh, we showed it to Tom Rothman, he was like, well, you know, that's, that's the movie. I mean, this is what, this is what we learned is, you know, is the, the night of the murder is August. Isn't an epilogue. It's the third act. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's interesting because um, I was listening to the, podcast he did with Brian Koppelman. Mm -hmm. And he made a really interesting point, which is, of course, you know, on a movie, even when it's a Quentin Tarantino movie, mm -hmm. it's still, you still have collaborators and you still having that back and forth with people. Yeah, yeah. You know, whether it's your editor, your DP, Tom Rothman, mm -hmm. actors, whomever. Yeah. On this one, you're calling the shots right from the off. So do you have any conversations with yourself? Mm -hmm. Are you having, you sitting down going, right, what am I, what am I going to do? Do you have the last line in your head when you're sitting down to write it? Um, oh, that's a good question, actually. Um, no, I didn't have the last line, even though that's probably like my favorite line in the it's whole a cracking book. last line. Yeah, I, I knew the sentiment. Yeah. I knew the sentiment. But, uh, but you know, but that was actually the, but, you know, but that was actually part of the writing of it. Like when it came down to, um, uh, transferring the scenes, especially the scene, there's a lot of, there's a, a, a wealth of brand new material that maybe I had known it. Mm. And I'd figured it out, but I had never written it down that that is in in the book and some stuff that I came up with in the course of the writing of the book. But the scenes that are are actually that that had already existed uh, in screenplay form to one degree or another, and yeah, that's yeah. one of those scenes that had existed in screenplay form. Um, I hadn't thought exactly how I was going to adapt it until it in, in, until it came time to write it. Yeah, yeah, and. Uh, 
and I hoped that, you know, I hoped I added more than just turning it into pro style. I was very open. You know, I, I had it as a nice uh, structure yeah. of how to write the scene, but then I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that my pen takes me and then I create a, <laughs> I create a whole thing. Is the screenplay process in any way applicable here or comparable? Well, I guess it, I, I guess it is, but, um, you know, the big difference for me was writing the book wasn't hard. Mm. It wasn't hard, but it was more difficult than writing a screenplay. Um, for the simple fact that screenplays have gotten really, really easy for me to write. Look, I've been doing it for 30 years and I'm pretty good at it. Yeah. And I'm really confident in it at it. And that doesn't mean I, I that doesn't mean I'm writing it with my left hand. I'm 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 working really hard on it. I'm giving it all I've got, but it's just really, really easy for me. That's actually kind of how I get into writing screenplays is um in my time in between writing a new movie maybe, okay, I'll make a movie and then I edit the movie and then go around the world selling it. And then I need some time off. Yeah. And then after I have my time off, usually I do film writing. Mm -hmm. I'll do film writing or back in the days before I did, uh, before I did Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I, I worked on that to some degree or another and wrote history about Rick Dalton's career. And you know, so I'm engaging in other type of writing other than screenwriting, mm -hmm. something that's a little bit more difficult for me. Mm -hmm. And so I would work on that and work on that and get my muscles built up on that. And um, after this period of time of doing that, it became, okay, I usually, something about whatever writing I was doing led me to the next movie to write, the next story I wanted to tell as a movie. And then the minute I started writing it as a screenplay, compared to what I had been doing, oh, it was just so easy. It just, just, it, I was, it, it, it was, you know, running up a hill before with uh, 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 25 pound weights attached to each ankle and doing double timing running. And then all of a sudden you take off the weights and you're the flash. <laughs> Quicksilver. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, you know, yeah. the, and all of a sudden you're just flying. And that's how it always felt like whenever I moved over to writing a screenplay. Now that doesn't mean that I don't have uh, uh, you know, story problems or plot problems like anybody else, but just the format of, of writing a screenplay and getting the characters talking to themselves is just a breeze for me. Mm -hmm. When was the last time you had story problems or plot problems? Or really something that, that really stymied you for, for a while? It's mm, a good question. Um, I've had, a, uh, um, I had a couple of, the, I had a couple of them on, on, on Django Unchained. More, more about the idea of like, I could go this way. Yeah, yeah. Or I could go that way. Yeah. And so I found myself exploring one whole way and taking it to the nth degree and then uh, going another way and taking it to the nth degree. I think the only thing I did on Django, uh, especially though, was exactly how um, Schultz was going to die. Whereas I knew it was going to be a situation between uh, uh, Candy and Schultz, mm. and um, and I and I and in that case, I ended up exploring like four 
completely different scenario. I mean, they're all let, they all were at the dinner and they all. Schultz was doomed no matter what happened. Yeah, exactly. He was done. It was all at the dinner, but like what, how, how, how they were going to have their confrontation and how it all was going to blow up and, and how Schultz would end up dying in the course of it. And so I, I think I read, I, I wrote out like four different scenarios, you know, and even the setups for all different scenarios. And one, there was another slave trader. And so he was like, introduced much earlier in the movie and then you saw him again and then you saw him again. So when he showed up uh, uh, to sell some slaves at the at Candyland Ranch, Candyland Plantation, uh, you know, the, the jig was, the jig was up. Yeah. 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 Uh, and then I had one that actually, that was actually pretty cool that I kind of liked where they had a, a showdown and they, uh, and uh, uh, Schultz just died. He just lost the showdown. <laughs> he, he lost the draw, you know, and it was like very, Unglamorous. I kind of like that one, frankly. Uh, but then eventually, I think I, you know, I came up with what I felt was the right one. But that was one where, like, you know, I, I even wrote it and I liked it. But yeah, I tried. To, I lived with it for a while, but uh-huh. I, I knew it wasn't right, and I had to go back. This is all grist for the mill for the Django and Jane novelization, which uh, <laughs> yes, you know, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> has has that been tickling away at the back of your mind, going, maybe I could go back and do them all. That would be, yeah, yeah. Well. I entertained that idea before I started doing this one. I don't really know if I'm, I'm I would be that interested in doing them all. Um, I mean, if I not not committing to not making a commitment right now to which ones I would do, uh, it seems the two that I would be more inclined uh, to do would be maybe Reservoir Dogs and True Romance. Okay, why why would those two? Well. Um, well, Reservoir Dogs is just just seems like it would work really good as a little paperback, and uh, you know it's a little crime story. There's you know, there's that little section in the bookstore just ready for it to go, you know, a little crime <laughs> section. Uh, um, and I even like um, and even when I first started thinking about the idea of doing a novelization, I first thought of Reservoir Dogs, and so I wrote a couple chapters of a Re- Reservoir Dogs novelization, Amazing. and then I was thinking, well, wait a minute, what am I doing here? I mean. I actually have so much material that uh, uh, that I never use. Not even like stuff that like drops scenes. I just have so much material from uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood that would be perfect for a novel. And it's my last movie and it was successful and people seem to like it. So that w- really should be the one I do. And yeah. so that's the one I did. Yeah. Um, and then, um, you know, and True Romance was like the first uh, screenplay I ever finished. And, uh, and there's a lot... Uh, 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 there's a lot more there between the characters, I think, that could be said. Well, it's interesting to say true romance because obviously that is that's a movie in which you know, even though you didn't direct it, your your compassion for the characters comes across, yeah. and that's what struck me reading the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood novelization. Mm-hmm. Is that you have so much compassion for Rick mm-hmm. and for Cliff, even mm-hmm. though Cliff is a very complicated guy. <laughs> <He's dead. laughs> I mean, he is complicated. <laughs> uh, but it just strikes me that the ending of both the movie and the novelization mm-hmm. are about giving Rick a second chance, yeah, and giving him this this pathway to mm-hmm. a possible future that isn't just simply at the bottom of a bottle, yeah. And yes, right on. Is that something that you discover as you go along? Compassion for your characters is it, or is it inherent? Is it built in? Do you have compassion for all your characters, for example? Well, it's funny. I I I personally have. A tremendous amount of compassion for my characters, even my villains. Um, frankly, one of the only ones that I I I didn't have some sympathies for 
was the Calvin Candy character. And yeah. then there was like one moment. And so it was, and I felt there was a, I almost felt like a bit of a fraud about the idea that uh, I was presenting him as such a villain. I, but I just, he repelled me. Mm. And, but I, and I'm talking about a repelling situation, a repellent situation uh, as far as the antebellum South. But I had never judged a character that harshly before. And I felt a bit of a fraud by trying to portray him by, by having such a made up mind mm. about him. And um, a very happy, happy day on the set was uh, a sequence we did with uh, the Calvin Candy character and, and Leo was playing him. And there was something Leo. There was something Leo did in that day, and in, in a take, in a take he was doing, and all of a sudden the scales from my eyes when mm. it came to Calvin fell away, and Leo showed me a glimpse into his humanity mm. that I had been judging before, and I hadn't been able to see, and this glimpse into his humanity made me question, made me question, made me ask the question, can you blame a Borgia for being a Borgia? Mm -hmm. Now, yes, you can blame a Borgia for being a Borgia, but it's a question. Mm. I mean, did he really ever have a chance? Did mm -hmm. he ever have a chance? And well, that's debatable. I mean, could he have done a lot of different things? Could he have felt a lot of different ways? Obviously, of course he could have. Uh, uh, that's not an, an that's not an excuse for him. But really, what chance did he have? Yeah. Back then, living in that life, surrounded in that gilded cage. Yeah, and that, that's interesting. That 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 glimpse that you didn't expect yourself. No, I mean, I you know I uh, you know, and I I bragged about it to everybody in the vicinity at the time. You know, made Leo feel really good, you know, uh, uh, because, you know, he really showed, you know, he, 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 he managed to give me a mirror, managed to, uh, uh, show me a portrait of my character that I, I hadn't been able to see. And that was, you know, the human heart. That's really interesting because that's something that, you know, I ask a lot of actors who play villains, mm -hmm. um, about playing a bad guy and what's that like. And sometimes you get an answer, which seems fairly standard but they say well my character doesn't think of himself as a villain he doesn't mm, yeah. see himself as mm. the as the evil guy um clearly with leo that is sometimes you feel less than maybe a little bit boilerplate mm. to, uh, in terms of an explanation but with leo if he can find humanity in calvin candy then there's hope for everybody right? well it was also one of those things about with like with leo friends uh, uh uh particularly you know you don't use the v word <laughs> Yes. <laughs> With Leo. Leo is playing a character <laughs> yeah. that hopefully has as much three dimensions as him and I can bring yeah. to the situation. And just just by using, and believe me, I have no problem using the V word. You know, I have no problem using the V word in something like Kill Bill. Mm -hmm. I have no problem yes. using the V word in Death Proof. Or, uh, <laughs> uh, 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 you know, I try to make you, you know, uh, the complication is like you know is like try to make my villains recognizable or or, yeah. or, or charming yeah. to the point of disturbance yes. um but you know he doesn't like the v word for the simple fact that 
Well, no, I'm 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 a character. I'm not a plot function. Yes, I'm not simply here to tell a whipped genre story. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I am the function of a whipped genre story. Yeah, uh, I, I want to be a character. <laughs> yeah. Um. But to go back to your original question, is yes, I have a tremendous amount of uh, compassion for my characters, but. Me, Quentin, yes, me, Quentin does, but the godlike storyteller that's involved can be heartless yes. towards them. I will not let my compassion for them or my understanding of them or my love for them get in the way of the, of, uh, the horrible twist of fates that can befall them. Absolutely. I do want to talk about that in terms of in terms of Rick uh, also and that compassion for Rick mm-hmm. in a second. But what you said is really interesting about that because you have throughout your career had this incredible ability to just kill characters when the story requires it no matter what <laughs> no matter what their demands are. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I've always loved that about your work right from Reservoir Dogs onwards. Um, is that something that came naturally from the beginning? Oh, yes. Well, because it's just this fraudulent crap that you see in movies all the time that characters that that should buy it don't because it has to deal with the dictates mm-hmm. of a, a movie or the fact simply that, well, you're, you know, you know you're watching a movie. Yeah. Or so you-, you know Harrison Ford is not... <laughs> yeah. When Harrison Ford leaps... You know, off the mountain uh, uh, in uh, uh, the fugitive, you know he's not going to die. Yeah, yeah, It'd be a shock because to be it's a movie, <laughs> yeah. and it's got too long to go. Yeah. What, is it going to be Tommy Lee Jones fucking around? All right, for the next forty minutes? No, yeah. it's Harrison Ford's going to is going to survive, and you know that's the limitations of movies. Yeah, is you know that your lead or your star is not you know is is it's going to probably push through. Now they might buy it at the end, but that's it. You know, and that was one of the, you know, the great shockers of Pulp Fiction. Yeah. Was uh, uh Vincent buying it right at the end. No, right at the end, right in the middle. Yeah. You know, uh at the hands of Bruce Willis. Um and um you know, and and so the thing about it is what I've tried to do is you know m- most people don't think about movies the way I do and even the way you do. Yeah. They're incredibly knowledgeable about a lot of films because they've seen a lot but it's not in the forefront of yeah. their brain it's in the subconscious of their brain. And um you know you're carrying around a lot of information that you don't intellectually know. You just Psych- psychologically know it and subconscious I meant to say subconsciously know it mm-hmm. um, and what I try to do is use your subconscious against you I try to use the information that you have from all the different movies you've seen and all the formulaic movies you've seen um, to startle you to to use them against you and a good example of that is uh, in the movie Once Upon a Time in Hollywood where um, I think one of the best sequences of any of my movies is when Cliff goes to Spawn Ranch. Yep. And so he goes to Spawn Ranch and when you watch it in the theater, especially if you people seeing it for the first time, you can hear a pin drop in the theater. People are 
are kind of terrified. Yep. And they're terrified because they're worried for Cliff. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have information he doesn't have, which is how dangerous the Manson family can actually be, what what these people are capable of. He's getting, you know, he, he's got this great soldier, warrior, sub, you know, survivor, spidey sense mm-hmm. about him. So he's realizing something's up mm-hmm. and then he should be a little bit on the, on the, uh, uh, on guard a little bit. But at the same time, it's just a bunch of girls. I mean, you know, what's, what's really to be, they're creepy, but, but so what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but the thing about it though is you're probably not. The audience is thinking, oh, Cliff could die. And not like, could he die? He might die. I mean, this might be the end of him. This could happen right now. Mm -hmm. This could legitimately Mm -hmm. happen. Now, the reason they're thinking that is because I don't think it's in the forefront of their brain. It's in the back of their brain. Dramatically, he's the kind of character you could kill at that point in the Mm -hmm. movie. I'm not going to kill Rick with 25 minutes of the movie left to go. Yes. That's not going to happen. Yeah. That's not going to happen. Yeah. I'm not going to kill Sharon in fucking February. <laughs> Good point. That's not going to happen. Sharon's not going to die in February. Um, but because we've seen other movies and because we know that Cliff could be a disposable character at that point. No, he could die. Mm-hmm. Alabama could mm-hmm. have died yeah. by James Gandolfini. Yeah. In fact, it would actually give Clarence something to do for the next 20 minutes <laughs> if she died. Uh, uh, you know, and um, I learned that trick from watching a movie. I learned that trick when I was, um, there's a, a Stephen King adaptation about movie about werewolves called Silver Bullets. Silver Bullet, yeah. And, um, one of the things about that movie was in the film, Gary Busey plays the uncle mm-hmm. to these two kids, one of them being Corey Haim and the other one being this like 14-year-old girl. And Gary Busey is so charming in that movie. He's so funny and he's so charming and the audience just loves him, just absolutely laughed at everything he said and then just just totally on his side. And he hadn't been that good in a while. And so it was like a real return to form yeah, for Gary yeah, Busey. Yeah, yeah. It was all pre-motorcycle accident. And um, and so the thing is, so you're watching the movie and now it comes the big confrontation with the werewolf. And it's a pretty exciting sequence at the end. Um, but now the thing is, okay, so Corey Haim is playing uh, a crippled kid and well, they're not going to kill the 12-year-old cripple kid. They're not going to do that. So he's okay. He's going to get through it. <laughs> well, they're not going to kill the 13-year-old girl. She's narrating the fucking movie. Her adult self is narrating the self. So she's going to survive. She's going to get through it. Gary Busey, they could kill. He could die in the end. And I was so scared for him. But I realized... Why I was scared for him, because dramatically they could off him. Yeah, where yeah. they're not going to off the other characters. That and that made me scared for him. I go, oh, that's why I was so terrified for him. Yeah. I can use that. I yeah. can use. I, I I can fuck with viewers that way. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you uh, you watch Better Call Saul, 
But no, I don't actually. There's, there's a character in Better Call Saul who isn't in Breaking Bad. Oh, uh-huh. And everybody has assumed from the off that that character would therefore be killed at some point in Better Call Saul. Uh-huh. And what they've done is a masterstroke. They've made her the most likable not not necessarily straight down the, the middle, not, yeah, yeah. not a straight arrow, but any stretch of imagination. Uh-huh. But she's really, really likable. Yeah. And so it's, it now gets to the point where every time, especially as you're getting towards the end, every time she appears on the screen and every time they, they put her in this put slight, her in a dangerous situation, slight vicinity of danger, then you're on tenterhooks. And oh, it's wow, glorious. Wow, that sounds fantastic. Glorious. Mm-hmm. It, you should check it out. You yeah, should yeah. check it out. It's it's an amazing, amazing show. Uh, every bit the equal of, of Breaking Bad for oh. me. But uh, it's 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 really interesting that uh, that idea that you were, you were, you're saying there about I think there's also something else that people have when they're watching Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and when mm-hmm. when Cliff goes to the Spawn Ranch. Yeah. And that is it's it's at the back of their their, their brains at the subconscious level I'm watching the Quentin Tarantino movie. Yeah. Oh well I'm yeah I, I'm not to be trusted. And anything can happen. He's yeah. not to be trusted. I am not you are not in good hands with me. <laughs> I uh no I have proven I, I I have proven myself to be completely untrustworthy when it comes to uh uh um uh, midwifing the characters you like <laughs> through the, <laughs> through the scenario to a to a uh, to uh, to a nice nest <laughs> of their mother's arms yeah yeah for Mr Orange onwards it's just, yeah. just savage absolutely savage uh, is has there ever been a point where perhaps in even in you know with Cliff that maybe you thought I can't do this or has there been a point in your career where you there, there's a, a character or, or a, a moment that took you by surprise that you thought I don't really want to do this but the story's telling me it has to be done that's a really good question um well, yes, I, I, more than likely, probably um, a good half of the time. Uh, um, I love these characters, so I'm not just gleefully uh, uh, cackling away like a witch as, as I uh, have them meet their ultimate fate, um, you know, or you know, destroy them or tear them apart mm-hmm. or something. Um, it hurts me. Yeah, and but but my, where my 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 feeling is what it just needs to be done. Yeah, all right. You know, uh, God seems to be rather heartless when it comes to dishing out fate. <laughs> um, uh, but at the same time, though, um, you know, if it hurts me, then chances are it'll it'll hurt the viewer. Yeah. I do. Uh, you know, I've been criticized from time to time for stuff uh, because it's because I make it painful. And I want it to be painful. Yeah. I'm doing it to hurt. I'm doing it to hurt bad. Yeah. This is true. Inglorious Bastards, for example. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the the bar scene. Yeah. And is that something that you, you know as a writer when you're putting everyone in there that that's what's going yeah, to I happen? Yeah, I, 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 I did know how, I, I did know it was going to um, explode. Yeah. Going into that basement, I, I knew, um, I, I knew Bridget would get out of it, but nobody else would. And even she was going to take a bullet. Um, I did know that because I, that was almost seemed to be the thing. I, I put them in the worst, you know, th- there's no escape. Yeah. It's a small little room. Nobody can get out of anybody's way. So the minute somebody starts shooting machine gun, it's over. <laughs> yeah. They're all yeah. going to be wiped out. Uh, everybody who's on, on the wrong side of the machine gun anyway. <laughs> uh, uh, um, you know, the surprise of that scene yeah. is just how effing long it was. Because it's like I'm 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 writing it 
and you know the characters are are talking and they're doing their thing and and then, well, this is pretty good. And so it goes on a little longer and it goes on a little longer. And, uh, well, this is, this is getting kind of long. And uh, I'm just, <laughs> I, don't, I haven't even got to like the midpoint. And I haven't even, I haven't even introduced Hellstrom yet. You know, <laughs> yeah. uh, um, uh, the Gestapo guy is still in the wings. Yeah. You know, but, but, but it just seems to be good. So I, I keep going a little further and a little further until, Finally, and then the Hellstrom comes in, and then they still have to play the game, and they play the game, but the game works, and it's really terrific. And I finished it, and I'm like, Jesus Christ, it's 25 fucking minutes. <laughs> Can I just stop the movie and have a 25-minute scene in a basement? Like this little one-act play all right that just breaks out in the middle of my bunch of guys on a mission movie yeah 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 you know and then um and i like i read it again and i read it again and i read it again and i go look maybe i'm deluding myself but uh i think it holds i think it works and not only do i think it holds i think the length is making it more suspenseful yeah it was like the longer I stretch the rubber band and dare it to break, the more you're waiting mm -hmm. for it to break and the more un <laughs> unnerving it is. It's true. You know, and the longer it stretches, the more painful it gets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so I mean, so, it's, so to me, even though it almost could seem counterintuitive, it seemed as if, um, no, it's not about get in and get out and that's the more... Uh, that that's a more effective way of doing it. No, just its length itself made it excruciating, but in a suspense way. Yeah, I, I want to go back to uh, to to Rick. I want to go back to this idea that you have. I I I'm sensing as much as much compassion, if not more compassion, for Rick than any of your characters. I don't know if that's true, but that's what I'm sensing because of that that sense you've given them the happy ending twice or the you know, the pathway twice. Well. I have a lot of compassion for him, but I mean, but it's interesting though, because, you know, I have, um, I have mixed feelings about Rick, um, and not, not mixed feelings that I, you know, think he's a bad person. I mean, there's like, I mean, there's an as aspect about Rick where I think he's a complete fucking asshole. Mm -hmm. All right. And there's an aspect about Rick. I think he's a complete fucking dumb shit. And, <laughs> and I get that across in, in both the movie and the book. Who's the bard <laughs> is one of the funniest lines in the book. When Sam Wanamaker's talking about Shakespeare and he goes, you know, he says the bard, Rick's thinking, who's the bard? Who's the bard? <laughs> who's the bard? <laughs> yeah. It's like uh, the Prince of Denmark. <laughs> what? It, Hamlet's Danish? I, I didn't know that. Okay. Good point. Who knew? Yeah. Well, some people know. <laughs> you dumbass. <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, but that that actually makes me like him more. Yeah. Okay. That that yeah. that doesn't turn me off on him. That yeah, makes yeah, me yeah. like him, and that makes him like a real person. All right. Um, but where I'm conflicted with Rick is um. I think he's an ungrateful bastard. I think he's got a really great fucking life. He's so up his own fucking ass, he cannot realize how fortunate he is. Mm -hmm. Do you know how many people come to this town and don't do a fraction mm -hmm. of what he's able to accomplish? They, they will never have a TV show. 
They yeah. will never yeah. be famous for a period of time. They will never live in a house like that that they were able to pay with their acting money. They will never uh, uh, be able to uh, have a career that lasts as long as his. And anyway, I have the opportunity to star in movies. You know, how many how many young guys and young girls that came off the bus, you know, did he do an acting scene with, do a scene with on his show, Bounty Law, that like, you know, uh, worked for one year, two year, three years, mm-hmm. and that's it. They're going back. Yeah, no, they went back to Missouri. They went yeah. back to uh, uh, Indianapolis or whatever they came from. And, uh, um, you know, and he is, as he says, as uh, Eddie O'Brien told him, you know, he, he's a re- he's a citizen in good standing. All right, he's a yeah. uh, um, you know he's a property owner, and you and and even his reasons for being dissatisfied are are not true. It's it's are 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 coming from a, a an impure place. You know, yes, okay, he would obviously like to work with like a big Hollywood director Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. at that time. Uh, You know, they were making movies in 1968 or 69 or 70. Yeah, he would love to be working with a Norman Jewison. Mm -hmm. That's somebody he would like to work with because that's a good, good middle of the road director of making, (laughs) you know, you know, prestigious Hollywood movies. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, That's the kind of director he would like to work with or a George Roy Hill or somebody. I'm a big fan of George Roy Hill, actually. But the thing is, um, you know, but it's not like, oh, I want to do this wonderful artistic work and work with this really great director. No, he wants it for the prestige. He wants it for the the status. Yeah, that it that that it would give him, uh, you know, which is not necessarily the right reasons. Yeah, <laughs> to want to do what you want to do, uh, and um, you know, so I mean, you know, Leo. Leo thought it like in a gallows humor kind of way. Leo thought it was really kind of funny, all right, that, uh, you know, he would even say from time to time, he goes, you, because people just naturally feel sympathetic towards Rick mm-hmm. and his situation. And then Leo goes, Quentin has no sympathy for Rick. <laughs> <laughs> he thinks I'm a crybaby, all right? Everybody else feels so sorry for Rick except Quentin. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a heartless Quentin again. I think he doesn't appreciate how good he has it, and it's his fault. That's um, amazing. You know, and, but, and, but, but I'm glad I well, that is true, and I'm glad I felt that way. Yeah. Because in the book, Somewhat in the movie too, but especially in the book, that becomes the arc. Yeah, that that becomes the journey, you know, and that's what got me to the last page. Yeah, it's great because we talked about it last time as well. We talked about the um the not not the last time with Edgar, but the last time we talked about the Once Upon a Time in yeah. Hollywood. We talked about the idea that that Rick, after the events of the movie. Could be a character. You could be a guy who ends up in a Quentin Tarantino movie. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, could have that career rehabilitation arc. Well, uh, and now you know. Now you know I'm a fan of Rick. All right, because <laughs> yeah. of the book. You know, that, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Me and my dad were big fans of uh, uh, Fourteen Fists and McCluskey. That he really could have been in one of my movies. <laughs> <laughs> and um, he's got this. Uh, you know, so he's got this. Um, you lay out. You do go into detail, and you lay out this alternate future for him as well. Well, you don't even know the half of it. I figured it all out. (laughs) You just, you, you know, 
All right. I've worked out the entire career. I know the, I know every episode of every TV show he did. I, I, I know the entire trajectory of his career, exactly when he stopped, when he retired, everything. (laughs) Wow. So why are you holding back? Um, well, there, there just wasn't a place to put it in the movie to, to hop. Just have this massive fucking appendices. Just well, no, what like- I was like, well, what I well, okay, what I ended up, I've actually written it. I mean, I think there's, man, I probably need to punch it up a little bit. Okay. In fact, I know I do. But uh, but but the body of it completely exists. Is uh, I wrote a, uh, I've written a, I've written a uh, a book called like the films of Rick Dalton. You know, in the seventies, you could get those books like the films <laughs> yeah. of Charles Bronson, the yeah, films yeah, yeah. of Anthony Quinn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and you know that format yeah. that they came in. Well, this is that. Okay, it's the films of Rick Dalton, <laughs> and it gives you a little uh, um, uh, uh, quickie biography of his life, uh, and then it starts with okay, you start going through the career, you know, and then there's uh, uh, this episodic television show. And then this episode of show, and then this movie, and then that movie, and it starts with like you know the small parts he has in this one, and it builds all the, with little, little reviews of each thing, little synopsis of each of them, and it goes through the entire career until he retires in 1988, and that is written by me, all right, by Quentin Tarantino, all right, so it uh, uh, written by me in 19 uh, uh, in 1999, because in that in this pretext. In 1998, I go because Rick uh, uh, Rick retires and uh, moves to Hawaii. Yeah, and so he spends his you know twilight years in Hawaii. And so I go in 1998. I go to the Hawaii Film Festival and Hawaii International Film Festival, and I'm there. And Roger Ebert's there, and, and we're there, and I'm seeing films. And then um, you know one of the uh, uh, festival people. Go, hey, so is there anybody in, in, in uh, Hawaii uh, 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 that you'd like to meet? You know, um, you know, that, uh, go, well, uh, who's worth meeting here in Hawaii? And go, well, Don Ho's here, you know, and uh, this one's here and that one's here. Rick Dalton's here. Whoa, whoa Rick Dalton? <laughs> I wondered what the fuck happened to that guy. What happened? Oh, well, no, he retired in 88 and him and his wife, Francesca, they moved to Hawaii. You know, and uh, oh, so Francesca's a keeper. Yeah, so Francesca, hang on there. That 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 ended up being successful. That, that's that's Cliff a was wrong. Yeah, Cliff was wrong. You know, uh, so the shows for you what Cliff knows. And, and <laughs> um, yeah, well, yeah, we really want marital advice from Cliff. All right. Uh, <laughs> Good point. Good point. Uh, so they arrange. <laughs> Uh, they arrange a lunch, though so I, you know, and he comes down to the hotel that I'm staying at, and and there's Rick. All right, he's about forty pounds heavier. All right, but there he is, you know, and uh, uh, you know, so we have a ball, and he's a really nice fellow. And then my movie shows, and uh, you know, he comes to the screening, and then he, he and, and he comes, he shows up, uh, you know, usually every year for a couple of screenings at the wife. I feel he's long since retired, and um. And I have such a good time with him that the next year, 99, uh, you know, I have, uh, I, I've done this before at festivals. I go to the festival, and I kind of arrange a Rick Dalton retrospective. So mm-hmm, we mm-hmm. arrange to get some prints and we show some prints of his movie, have a nice little thing for him. And he likes that. And then that spurs me to write uh, an appreciation of his career. 
called uh, The Man Who Would Be McQueen. <laughs> the films of Rick Dalton. <laughs> yes. And then, uh, uh, you know, so I write it and then there's, and it's prefaced by this huge Q&A that I have with Rick at that time. Wow. It's all written. Wow. <laughs> it, it exists. So is this, are we going to see this? Is well, this... I'm going to finish my, I'm going to finish my, my, my cinema book first. All okay. Right? So I'll, I'll do cinema speculation. Well, uh, Harper's already said that they want to do it. I mean, it's just a, it's just a silly thing, but all right. Quentin, but it's you could f- you could write a shopping list and they would publish yeah, yeah. it. But this sounds amazing. Well, I I like it. I like it. you know. It's like uh, I I think it. I think there is a limited audience to it. But everybody who likes Rick and cares about Rick and is interested, uh, one is interested in in the the um in the trajectory of Rick and is now become invested to my alternative history of Hollywood. <laughs> well, this takes the alternative history of Hollywood all the way to the bitter end. <laughs> so are you, are you, how big are the ripples in this thing? Have you got alternate Academy Awards? Well, is, is he's your, not that lucky. All right. I'm not saying Rick's going to win one. I don't, you no, know. No, no. He's, you he's know, never in anything. He's never up for anything. Any he's... close to, <laughs> to an academy. He's, he's not Trudy. <laughs> That's right, because Trudy is, uh, yeah. Yeah, she uh, yeah. gets nominated three yeah. times. All right. Um, no, he has, well, I, I, I don't want to ruin it. All right. I can't, uh, I don't want to jump to the uh, 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 um, exciting um uh, twelve last twelve years, of course. Um, but he no he had uh, uh, um he had he has a genuinely interesting career. He has a genuinely interesting career, and um, and he has one he has a couple of successes, uh, but he has one major major success, yeah. um, major slash minor success. But the, but actually does set him up for his last ten years. Amazing. In a very interesting way, yeah, but there's, a, there's no point in saying it because then you don't need to read the, read the book. It actually would be it's it's you know the reason to read it is to see what happens. This to is it. A, I'm on board. I'm on board. And by the way, I'm also on okay, board I'll give for you one. I'll give you one little hint though. Okay. not about that. Not about all right. But this was this is definitely a success for him. Just to give you a con, just to give you an idea, he plays the Andrew Prine part in the movie Grizzly. <laughs> But now, actually, so after that, Halloween, that was the highest grossing independent movie of the 70s. Amazing. Amazing. Was it? So that, I, didn't, yeah. I did not know that. It was the highest grossing independent movie of, of, uh, of the 70s. It was, it was forever until Halloween the, uh, dethroned it. And when Halloween dethroned it, it didn't dethrone it the first year it was released. It was the 1979 re-release of Halloween <laughs> during Halloween that actually made it go through the roof. Poor Andrew Prine. <laughs> He's been shunted out of history. No, I love Andrew. I worked with Andrew Prine in uh, 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 in my CSI episode. So there's also an alternative history of Quentin Tarantino. No, really? Uh-huh. As well. So how deep in the weeds are you on that one? Because what do you mean? You, you mentioned it in this. There's a, there's a lovely reference to your 1999 movie. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. The Lady in Red. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. Um, oh, well, um, well. In a world, in a universe where I can save Sharon Tate and kill Hitler, <laughs> I guess I can add one movie <laughs> that I make during a six-year hiatus. <laughs> That's probably the least audacious thing I did. No, I love it. I love it. Yeah, you know, I just I wonder if there are more alternative movies that you've you've got. Not, well, no, no, around. no, 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 no
in this alternative universe, I make all the movies I made. Okay. All right. But okay. that was a six year period I didn't work. So I could <laughs> slip one in there. But then that would make Once Upon a Time in Hollywood my 10th film. And that would be so, it. So, yeah, so then the alternative history would be there will be no other one. That <laughs> I've dropped the mic. So Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. In the alternative history, yeah. I have dropped the mic on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and then exited the stage to acclaim. <laughs> so Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Of author, author. <laughs> <laughs> so it ends. They all lived happily ever after. Is yes. That, is that basically <laughs> yeah. basically how well, it one ends? One of the things I like about the one of the things I like about the the the, the films of Rick Dalton book is it doesn't have to be written. <laughs> it's me in 1999 <laughs> writing a cinema book that I'm not entitled that I have no business writing. I love okay, this. So, it, so it, it it doesn't matter how good it is, all right? Because I'm yeah. not sweating the details. <laughs> like I wouldn't have sweated the details. It's written like a fanzine. That's amazing. I <laughs> I cannot wait to see this. This sounds so incredible. And uh, yeah, how much of this? How much of the the details of Rick and Cliff in particular did you share with? Brad and Leo on set. Oh, quite a bit. You know, um, um, no, anything they, I didn't want to bombard them with a bunch of useless nonsense that it's like, God, shut up already. All right. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, but I'm, I'm definitely there to a ask, answer any question that they have, but especially, but, you know, it's, uh, but, but both of them, you know, um, until they didn't until they didn't need any more they wanted a lot especially at the very beginning yeah you know so i you know i explained fully a, a lot of uh rick's pre-career leading up yeah to the events of the movie he didn't really need to know anything about the end all right uh uh but uh uh he was well well versed and and like when i would show him i would show him movies that, you know uh uh that that weren't the movie he did because it's a it's a, an imaginary movie, but but that movie was sort of like this one. Okay. Imagine you're yeah, this yeah, guy. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so I would show you know uh, uh, you know so there is no fourteen fist and McCluskey for me to show him, but I could show him the the Roger Corman movie, The Secret Invasion. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, so you're okay, so it's a sort of like this movie, and you would be like the Eddie Burns character, <laughs> and then you watch, and he really liked Eddie Burns. He thought Eddie Burns was really good. That guy was cool. All right, I liked that guy, and then um, you know, I, and I and and just to give give him any idea of of uh, um, of Rick, I I showed him, uh, you know, I, I told him, okay, look, Rick's not going to be lucky enough to star in the Magnificent Seven. But he could be one of the stars of Guns of the Magnificent Seven, which is the <laughs> second sequel, not the first sequel, the yeah, second yeah. sequel, the one with George Kennedy yeah. is the star directed by Paul Winkos, his favorite director. And um, and then he would have played the Mar uh, the Monty Markham character. And he watched that movie and he really liked that film. He thought that was a cool film, but he got the idea. Okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. I see what this guy that's is. That's the kind of guy I'm yeah, meant to be. Yeah, that's okay. the kind of guy yeah, yeah, I yeah. You know, and I, I, I showed him about like, you know, uh, 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 I handpicked about seven wanted dead or alives for him to see. So he could get a concept of the show and go, oh, okay, I like this. That was pretty good. You know, and the same thing with um, uh, uh, Brad. Like, for instance, I never wrote, until I, until I was writing the book, I never wrote down the story of how he got Brandy and the whole dog fight yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I knew it. Yeah. I knew that that was how he got Brandy and that was what happened. So I told him. So Brad knew that that was the history. Oh, wow. Okay. But it was never written down. 
It was just a story I told him. And that's all just useful for Brad to... Yeah, in terms well, of like, well, now he knows how he got Brandy. The, yeah, you know, yeah, the, yeah. The, it's not just the dog appeared one day, you know. Well, actually, he did just appear one day, but the thing, you know, but, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, but, no, I want I want people to know things like that. Yeah. You know, if you're with a, you know, if, if, if I'm writing a character about you and you've got a girlfriend, I want you to know how you met her. Yeah. How it happened. It didn't just happen. Yeah. No, you you met her and this is what happened. And, you know, and Brandy is, for all intents and purposes, you know, his wife, you know, yeah. and, and so that's uh, it was important how he met her. Yeah, and you also definitively in the book. Uh, I don't want to give too much away for people who haven't read it yet, but mm -hmm. uh, you uh, you do answer definitively the question of whether Cliff killed his wife or not. Yes, and is that something that Brad? You told Brad. Is that something Brad needed to know? Yeah, Brad knew. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> he absolutely knew. He absolutely positively knew. Yeah. <laughs> And again, that's useful in terms of infusing. Yeah, yeah. But then also the thing about it is, look, I, you know, it was fun not telling you in the movie because in my screenwriting, it's actually almost part of a staple of my screenwriting as much as any of the other uh, recognizable tropes that, you know, people tend to uh, list. But um I think right up there with all those other tropes is just the idea that there's a lot of things I leave unanswered where I, I'm, I'm demanding that the viewer answer it for themselves. And depending on their answer, that paints the movie that you watched compared to what you're, uh, compared to what the person sitting next to you yeah, yeah. is watching, whether you know that person or not. Um, you know, and so, to some degree, you write ten or fifteen percent of the movie yourself, and um, you know, and, and where I'm always coming—that's why I never answered some of these questions. Um, where I'm coming from is whatever you decide, you're right. <laughs> yeah, for yeah, you. yeah, yeah. That's your movie. Yeah. And in the case of uh, Brad on 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 the boat with his wife, that's two different movies. Okay, there's one movie where. Even if it was uh, a fit of murderous impulse mm -hmm. at that moment, mm -hmm. not a, uh, not a premeditated Columbo-like plan, where, no, he killed her. He pulled the trigger. He pulled the trigger. He killed her. Doesn't matter how he felt about it later. He did it. And then he got away with it. And... Yes, he has to live with the rumors and he has to live with speculation, but he doesn't have to live in jail. All right. He, he, he got away with it and maybe he feels bad about it. And uh, he feels a lot better than he would feel if he was do doing a life in prison. Yeah. Um, and now that's the movie you're watching, a movie that that happened. The other story is, no, he didn't mean to do it at all. It literally was a mishandling of a dangerous, of, 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 a, of a, uh, a dangerous tool and tragic tragedy struck and he ended up murdering his wife and he actually is innocent. He's only guilty of an accident that just literally happened uh, that he couldn't control yet he has to now live under the uh, uh, under the suspicion, yeah, 
and and the belief by a lot of people that he actually is a murderer. Well, that's a whole other movie. <laughs> it's true. That you're it's watching. True. Yeah. Okay. Now with the book, you get to answer that question. You know, uh, and you know, and therein goes back to the beginning of our conversation. What's the difference between writing a book and a screenplay? <laughs> also because I, I, I think and again I don't want to give too much away about how it happens in, in the book or what happens in the book, but it's so macabre what happens. <laughs> yes. And I don't know how you do that in a film. I mean, you probably could, Quentin, but... Oh, I could have done that. You could have done that? Yeah, I could have done that. Okay. I could have How would that. you have done it? I would have done it just the way it was written. I would just would have done it. Okay. I wouldn't have done a CGI, that's for damn sure. It that been is for sure. It would have, yep. been, a, it would have been practical effects. Yeah. And uh, uh, yeah, it would be macabre and, and, and it, would, uh, it would be grotesque and it might even be a little funny like it is on the page, all right? Um, but uh, no, and that, that's, that's doable. Well, listen, I've got, I've got to let you go in a second. I just want to ask a couple of last questions, sure. if you don't mind, before yep. you head out into the London night. Um, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, so there's, a, there's elements, I guess, of, of your own Hollywood, but I imagine a lot of elements of your own Hollywood experience. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a line that, and you've mentioned it already, but there's a line that really stuck out to me, which was Rick's given advice early on in his career, mm -hmm. which is when you get a little bit of money in this town, you buy real estate. Yeah. You put you put down roots, so you're not you know you're not mm -hmm. that sort of transient type. Yeah, yeah. Who could you know, who could be kicked out at any second? Does that come from your own experience? Is that what happened the second that you 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 started doing well? Um. I don't think I was basing that on my experience per se. Uh, I'm, I, I think that's more of a, I think that's more of an actor thing. Okay. Because I think actors tend to be a little bit more transient where they, you know, they have ups and they have downs and, uh, you know, uh, uh, some people, is, is, some people do good in their early twenties because they're handsome and they're pretty and they're, they're whatever. And then, uh, you know, yeah, from, from 20 to you know 27 26 they do really good maybe even up to 31 or 32 and, but then all of a sudden you notice you haven't seen them around <laughs> like uh much lately and then all of a sudden you know uh, uh uh you know they make these weird appearances when they're like 44 or 43 and uh oh wow what happened to blah 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 and uh, there he is well he just he lived life but uh you know he's he's he wasn't working like he was uh you know uh from 21 to you know, yeah. 26. Um, and just, they go through periods like that. And then, you know, it just, and, you know, at a, a certain point in time, you know, they, 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 you know, they, you know, maybe at some point they jump ship, they go back to the hometown, they go, they buy a bar, they buy a tavern, they, you know, go and do community theater, or they go on the road doing a, a dinner theater or something like that. Um, uh, you know, I mean, that can, look, that can obviously happen to anybody, but, you know, but the reality is, if you've done something of note as a director or a writer or a craftsman, like a cinematographer or an editor or something, you might not be working in exactly everything you want to do, but you can probably find work. Yeah. You know, unless you're a jerk, unless people, unless you've made, created a situation where people don't want to work with <laughs> yeah. you pass uh um and and sometimes people don't play their hand that they have right that can absolutely definitely happen but you know uh 
you know, but you know, but uh, I think most people for a for a long period, more than most actors, you know, would be able to like you know direct episodic television or yeah. you know edit an episodic television show. That I mean that that's that's in the cards for them. Yeah, you know, so uh, so um, so yes, like I did buy a house, but 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 I don't think it's in the same situation as 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 an actor. Was that the big extravagance? Whenever you became successful, a house, or was it the screen well, it room? Or? No, it wasn't an ex- extravagance at all. One of the things I did was um, that seemed to be the trajectory. Is the minute people started making money, they bought a house. Yeah, and so. They bought the house, and yes, they have a house, and that's money in the bank. Well, supposedly, that was money in the bank, uh, as far as I was concerned. But the thing about it is, like, they had accumulated wealth, they accumulated, accumulated, and now they could afford a house, and they bought a house, and now they didn't have wealth anymore because they just had a house. <laughs> so now they almost had to yeah. start from scratch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, to build their their bank a uh, bank account up again. Um, so I didn't do that. So I didn't buy, I just stayed in my apartment <laughs> um, after Reservoir Dogs, after Pulp Fiction, <laughs> I just kept staying in my apartment. And so then I bought, I didn't buy, I was renting the apartment above my apartment. So then I had a little townhouse kind uh, of situation, but I'm still paying the rent that I was paying before I did uh, Pulp Fiction. I'm just paying it double, you know, because I have two places. Um, and then, so after six years, then I bought a house, you know, and then when I bought a house, it didn't clean out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I like it. You've thought about it. Yeah. And, and, and uh, you know, but I didn't know anybody did that. Everybody else, just as soon as they had, you know, as soon as they made that million dollar, you know, uh, yeah, yeah, bank yeah. account in the, in the industry, then they just dumped it all in a behemoth. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I want to get more into the logistics of how you had two apartments above each other, and uh-huh. so presumably you'd have to leave your front door and then go up the stairs. No, yeah, well, it was just a um, well. Here was the thing: is I got that place, and I just ended up turning it into a storage facility, basically, okay. because I was at outlived the the space of my. That was why I eventually did buy a house because I was basically both places had turned into a storage facility because <laughs> I had so much junk that I had collected and was you know basically. Where anybody else would be going on a um, a buying spree, whether it be clothes or jewelry or cars or motorcycles or any kinds of stuff like that, you know, I bought film prints and comic books and posters and lobby cards, just the shit that I would have bought if I was still working at Video Archives, except now I could buy a gargantuan amount of it. <laughs> so I'm just like, you know, Movie geek Richie Rich, <laughs> just <laughs> sitting there on my pack of used records <laughs> and forty uh, fives and video cassettes, yeah, piled to the ceiling. <laughs> go on, go on. I hope I don't suddenly <laughs> drop dead one day, and then <laughs> they have to come around and find me in amongst all this stuff. Can you imagine that? Yeah. Well, look, I actually, well, it's I mean, yelling your mic. Um, <laughs> that's the sad part for a lot of people I knew is. Um, you know, I had a I had a buddy that that spent his whole life. He used to work at video archives with me. His name is Stevo. He spent his whole life and and you know had a, a whole collection and all the big collect, a whole collection of Mad magazines and and Playboys and 
National Lampoons and all these like cool, about a bunch of DVD, had a big, big DVD collection and a big video collection and all these Disney cartoons. He was a big Disney dude and all these Disney toys and, and uh, um, collectible stuff like that. And he had a whole collection of comic books. And then, you know, uh, uh, he passed away. And um, his sister gave me all of his stuff because I had helped him out financially uh, toward, you know, toward, towards the end. And uh, okay, she, she gave it to me, but without a me yeah. in the picture. Where does it go? She would have been boxing up yeah. what to her would have been junk. But it was the junk of his life. Yeah. It, was, it was his whole life was in this collection. But then when, you know, but like actually if, if, if it wasn't for the situation he had with me, it probably would have been put in a storage facility that he couldn't have paid for. And it just would have been lost. And then the storage facility would have been auctioned off and that shit would have gone out. And, you know, and, it, uh, um, and that's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. Cause a lot of these, a lot of these guys, they, they die alone. And then they're just surrounded by what everyone that we see a worth in it. Yeah, we yeah. know how important it we is. We impart that value to it, yeah. We have value to it and we know that it constituted a life for him. But to everybody else, yeah, it's just a bunch of junk. Yeah. Oh man. Well, listen. Okay, sorry to bum you out. No, no, it's it's it's, it's all good. It's Friday night. Let's <laughs> let's start with being bummed out. It's good. Um, I'm gonna let you go, but Clint, as you can see, as, as the listeners start looking around their one room apartment, <laughs> going, "What the fuck have I Yo, done? What the fuck have I done with my life? I've wasted my life, <laughs> Jesus! I don't have a wife, and this is why." <laughs> We brought them back. We brought them back for being bummed out. I love it. Quentin, as you can see, this is just a question I wrote down. I could ask you stuff about this book all day long, but I've got to let you go. Um, there is one last thing I do want to ask sure. you. So you've got cinema speculation coming up. Yeah. Uh, when's that coming out soon? This, this, this. Uh, well, um, more than likely, uh, not, uh, uh, not this November, probably next November. Next November. Okay. All right. So then hopefully the Rick Dalton book will come out at some point after yeah, yeah. that as well. Yeah. Then Quentin Tarantino's shopping list, which I would buy. Yeah. I would buy the shit out of that. Uh, and then what? what's next after that? Have you, you know. Well, that's it, a lot of shit. All that's right? a lot okay. of shit. That's and, a lot of shit. Well, uh, look, I have, I have written a play. All right. You know, so okay. uh, that'll probably, before I do the next movie, the plans will probably be that I do a play. Okay. And uh, uh, so, oh, you know, I wrote it before I did um, during the writing of, of Once Upon a Time in, in Hollywood, the, the script, not the book. Like, do you have to now make it clear what I'm talking about? <laughs> uh, uh, I wrote the script, and then, but I wasn't ready to make it yet. I, I, and because I wasn't finished, ready to finish writing. So, <laughs> I wrote the script. Then I wrote the play. Then I wrote five episodes about it. <laughs> <laughs> then I showed people the script for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. <laughs> I was just in a writing mode. All right, you know, uh, so, uh, 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 so, you know, so the next, you know, dramatic thing I probably will do will, will more than likely be the play. And It'll the idea the is to do it here in the West End. Amazing. We'll see what happens. But that's the idea. And this is completely original. This isn't based on anything you've done before. This is. I'm a, not going to tell oh, you. I, okay, I got you. I got you. <laughs> and uh, have your thoughts turned towards 
10 yet. No, 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 not yet. Like I said, I'll, I'll, the, 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 the plan is to play. And then after that, then I'll start. I will be a different person by that time. And we'll see what he wants to make. <laughs> <laughs> well, whenever he makes that, come back and we'll have a chat about it. Well, he'll appreciate that. Quentin Tarantino, pleasure <laughs> as always, man. Thank you so much indeed. My pleasure, mate. Thank you. And that was Quentin Tarantino on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And I don't know about you guys, but basically I can't wait for everything he outlined there. A Tarantino play debuting in London. Yes, please. A book outlining Rick Dalton's career in microscopic detail, including an interview with an alternate Quentin Tarantino. Yes, please. His shopping list. Yes, please. And while we're waiting for those, if you haven't read Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, it is a ton of fun and is available now in a number of different formats. There's the paperback edition, of course. There is the ebook. There is the audiobook narrated by Jennifer Jason Lee, and a brand new hardback version, which came out just before Christmas. All that remains is for me now to say thank you for supporting the Empire Podcast throughout the year. Or if you're a first-time listener, then stick around. We have new episodes out every Friday and a spoiler special subscription channel in which you'll find Quentin Tarantino talking about the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood movie, amongst other great interviews. Oh, and hey, if you haven't listened to that Edgar Wright Quentin Tarantino podcast, it came out in January of this year, or last year, if you listen to this in 2022. It is available on the Emperor Podcast feed. Just do a search for it. It is three hours of unmissable film buff goodness that is well worth your time. So have a listen to that as well. Right, that is definitely it for me now. I'm off to rent the flat above mine. I have to have somewhere to store my comprehensive collection of Twix wrappers. Thank you for listening. See you next time. Bye. Bye.